Jonah chapter 4. And we thought about this verse, verse number 1 of chapter 4, just at the end of the last session. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thou of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take I beseech thee my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth. And he sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Then said the Lord, thou hast had pity on the gourd for the which thou hast not laboured, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between the right hand and the left hand, and also much cattle. And then the book finishes. And it almost finishes without a finish. And there is no everyone lived happily ever after, and Jonah was recovered to the Lord and changed his ways. There's none of that whatsoever. It's just as it is. So the question we start off this evening is a simple question. The question is, what is it going to take for Jonah to repent? For someone to go through what he had gone through to this point, which was extreme to say the least. He, as we've been thinking in these last sessions, he had been commissioned by God to be his prophet and had done that role in the reign of Jeroboam II. And He had seen peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel despite the wickedness and evil of the king. He had been commissioned to do that hard thing that we were thinking about, which was to go to a hostile environment, Nineveh, which was one of the main cities of the Assyrian Empire, which was the enemy of Israel. And at that time, the Assyrian Empire was in slight flux, not quite declined, but slight flux, And Israel was knowing peace and prosperity as a consequence. So go and do that hard thing. Go into the main city, if you like, of your enemy and preach a message of coming judgment. For whatever reason, in fact, we find out the reason here in chapter 4. He decides not to do that. He decides to run. And we've been thinking about this idea of running from God, running from the hard thing God wants us to do whatever that may be. And then we find this, that there is deliverance for Jonah in the great fish. And we were thinking about Jonah's psalm, the psalm of the prodigal prophet, as we were thinking about it. And we thought about the words that he expressed and the self-centered, selfish words that he expressed in, uh, in the belly of the fish. And we thought about his thinking 
and the way his mind was operating and we looked at the lessons that we can learn from that. Then he was preaching in Nineveh. And we thought of the challenge of the message that he preached and the response of the people to that message. We thought about that in relation to our own circumstances and the challenge that we should take from it to preach. Now we come to this last chapter and we saw in verse number 10 of chapter 3 that God saw their works, that's the people of Nineveh, that they had turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he said that he would do unto them and he did it not. So we saw an outcome, a great outcome from Jonah's preaching. An outcome that surely would have pleased anyone who was a prophet of God who spoke for God. There was a positive outcome. It wasn't just in words, but in action. They didn't just say prayers. They didn't just say things. They didn't transfer their allegiance from that pantheon of, of idols but, uh, to, the, to the living God of heaven in word. But actually, their works manifested that repentance. And this had been a city marked by violence. And they were called to repent of that specific sin by the king. And they had. And God saw their works. And they were saved from the terrible things that God was going to do to that city because of their sin. So there is a, a, a city-wide salvation, a, a hearing God's voice, a repentance. A, we might call it a revival. It was hardly a revival because there was nothing there to revive. It really was the entrance of God's word, the entrance of light, the repentance of a city from the top to the toe, from the greatest to the least. Magnificent. Something that many of the prophets never saw. Jonah saw it. Jonah experienced it. And Jonah was exceedingly angry at God's mercy. It displeased Jonah. He wasn't happy. He was extremely unhappy. So he asked the question, Jonah, what's it going to take to draw you into line with God's will and purpose for your life? What does God have to do to make you think like he thinks, to have the same attitude towards the unconverted as God has, what is it going to take? You have been through the most extreme circumstances. You've known a, a storm sent from God himself. You've experienced that three-day experience in the belly of a fish. You've known what it's like to be vomited out of fish. You've known also what it's like to be recommissioned by God God is giving you another opportunity. You've seen a city, a city of pagan idolaters bend the knee to the living God. And still, your heart is hard and cold and angry against God. What is it going to take? What does God have to do? In Matthew chapter 28, it says this, verse 16 and 17, that the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. It's the same thing. What's it going to take to see the risen Christ? Why are you doubting his resurrection when you're seeing him? in resurrection ground but such is human nature such is our nature what does God have to do 
You see, it seems that Jonah was not receiving enough confirmation or affirmation or whatever it was. It's interesting that in the book of Matthew, the Lord Jesus speaks about the sign of Jonah. And although Jonah wasn't convinced by the signs he saw, Jonah's experience itself was a sign to an unbelieving nation. In, in response to the scribes and the Pharisees, who were some of the fiercest critics and of the hardest hearts that the Lord Jesus encountered, and they asked for signs of the Lord Jesus, interestingly, usually after the most spectacular signs had been given, the feeding of the 4,000, for example. And in the immediate aftermath of the healing of demon-possessed people and the feeding of thousands, they said to the Lord Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign. 4,000 people who were hungry have been fed. Demon-possessed people have been released from the bondage of that demon possession. By a sign they were saying this, prove conclusively that you are the Messiah. Matthew 12 Reads like this, then certain of the scribes and the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold a greater than Jonah is here. The Lord Jesus Christ said you will get no sign apart from the sign of Jonah which was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ following his death. And even when they received that sign some of his own doubted. The reality, I think, that we can take away from our studies in the book of Jonah, well, a few things, but one of the things we can take away is just this, we are so like Jonah. We're not different, really, from Jonah. I mean, different circumstances, more extreme things happened to him, and perhaps more extreme things were asked of him, but essentially his heart condition and the decisions that flowed out of that heart condition is pretty much like our heart condition. Perhaps we in our situation now can find ourselves somewhere in the story. Some of us are, are still running from God with the voice of God echoing in our ears. With the verse of scripture going through our mind and we're kind of running in the opposite direction. Some of us have stepped over that Rubicon that I spoke about when he stepped from dry land onto the boat. And that's a significant moment in Jonah's experience. Because that, as I've mentioned repeatedly, is when he goes from only involving himself in his sin and rebellion to involving other people in the consequences of his sin and rebellion. And he cannot turn back without their say-so now. So he's now in a community. The community are all heading out within that boat and they're all heading away from God and they're utterly unmindful of the predicament that this man has brought them into. Perhaps some of us are further away from God than that. Perhaps some of us have been cast into the sea metaphorically. Perhaps some of us are in the belly of the fish metaphorically. And we are still consumed with our own religious hypocrisy and self-righteousness and superficial Christianity. And we're saying prayers and we're making great claims in the midst of our disobedience. We're still proclaiming our faithfulness to God and our desire to sacrifice for God. But that 
these words, I should say, don't actually tie up. They're not consistent with our decisions that we're making and our choices that we're living out. But maybe some of us are here and some of us are angry with God. You wouldn't express it perhaps in the way that Jonah has, but deep down there is a simmering anger at God's actions in your life. The path that you have walked, the circumstances that pertain, and it's not the way you want it. It's not the way you would have it, but it's the way it is. And it causes you to be angry with God. That's where we pick it up in chapter 4. Jonah is throwing a strop. He is a strong-willed temper tantrum here in chapter 4. If he was a child, he'd be stamping his foot and shaking his fist. That's the impression you get from him. He's so unreasonable. It, It seems so irrational to behave the way he does because Jonah has done what God wanted him to do but God hasn't done what Jonah wanted God to do. So Jonah thinks he's been obedient to God but he can't understand why God's not obedient to him. Surely it works both ways. But actually it doesn't because one is the Lord and one is the servant. He's not just upset. That word means he is exceedingly angry. And in fact, in using these words, Jonah, it's expressing the highest level of displeasure that the language will actually allow him to express. He, in our language, is absolutely fuming at God. Raging. There is a deep anger within him at God. Doesn't really put him in a good light, does it? some cold-hearted prophet, some angry man with absolutely zero empathy for the people that he's just been preaching to, who he's been telling are just about to be subject in 40 days to the wrath of God and there doesn't seem to be a shred of compassion within his soul for these individuals. And he's preaching judgment without compassion in his own soul. And he's just angry. Why is that? Because he doesn't see the people of Nineveh in the same way that God sees them. He doesn't see a city full of people who bear the image of God and yet are worshipping idols. It's not what he sees. He doesn't see people who have no identity, who are lost in the darkness of their sin. He doesn't see people who are sick with sin broken in need of help. He simply sees immoral, unrighteous, willful people who are not the people of God. As far as he's concerned, they are not worthy of his compassion. (coughs) He has told the Ninevites that destruction is coming. He hasn't preached about God's salvation. He wasn't told it. One writer said this, he should have rejoiced in their repentance, but instead he felt betrayed, embarrassed, and completely indifferent toward the thousands of souls in this city. He didn't care for them in the slightest. Not in the slightest. Perhaps he's angry because he feels a bit like a fool. 
He said judgment is coming and he knows because they've repented, judgment won't come. He knows. Number one, he's angry with God. He's not angry with himself. He's not angry with men. He's angry with the holy, righteous, perfect God of heaven. He is angry with God. So the Bible tells us, we often think about this, that God is angry with the wicked every day. But it's an unusual thing to think about Jonah being angry with God because of his righteousness and his holiness. In fact, his anger is so intense that he says this, he would rather die than live. Now, honestly, if you were standing looking at Jonah, you'd be saying, Jonah, that's a bit dramatic. I mean, really? You were pleading for your life when you were being thrown into the sea. Now you're pleading for your death. And there seems to be such drama and there seems to be such self-centered in his focus. And he's praying for death. Do you know why do you want to die? Because God's going to save that city. He's angry with God because God is acting consistent with his character and he's doing exactly what Jonah expects him to do. He's angry with God because of the grace of God, essentially. So God has a lesson. One more lesson to teach Jonah. Verse number two, he prays to the Lord and he says to the Lord in his anger, I told you so. This is why I didn't want to do this. I knew this would happen. And he says, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Listen, that's why I ran away to Tarshish, Lord. I knew the sort of God you are. And then he has this eulogy of God that speaks about the greatness of God's character. He says, you're a gracious God, you're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're of great kindness, and you repent of evil. And because of that, I'm angry with you. Because I know that I would rather die than see you act like that towards these people. Now that's an extreme position to take. And so God decides to teach him another lesson. It's marvellous really when you think about it. Think about how reason, unreasonable Jonah is. You think about him railing against God. You think about what God's done for him uh, and the grace that God showed to him and still he's unreasonable, he's irrational in his railing against God. God is, of, God is slow to anger and Jonah's experiencing it. God is compassionate and Jonah's experiencing it. And what he experiences, he simply doesn't want anyone else to experience. <coughs> so you have what is essentially the main subject of chapter 4 unfold, which is Jonah and the plant. You know, these little sections in Jonah split themselves up into fantastic little pictures, little images. Jonah and the plant. And what is the Lord going to teach Jonah with this plant? Well, Jonah is given another experience to really expose to him how irrational and unrighteous his thinking is. God is dealing with him again. I don't know how many times God's had to deal with you and me before he can get us to shift an inch. What's he going to have to do? Well, what he does is just this, and it's a strange thing. 
He has challenged Jonah as to whether Jonah is right to be angry. He asked them the question, is it right that you are angry, Jonah? Do you know Jonah's response to that? He ignores God, verse 5, he goes out of the city, he sits on the east side of the city, he builds himself a wee booth, and he sits under it, hoping to see God judge the city. That's his response. Out he goes, builds himself a little booth, sits down and waits. And he is looking forward to the display of destruction that he hopes will come upon this city. While he's sitting there, in verse 6, God prepares him a plant. Simplest of things. And this plant grows beside Jonah. (coughs) And this plant grows over Jonah and overshadows his head and delivers him from his grief. And Jonah was exceedingly glad of the plant. So you go from this irrational, extreme language to the simplicity of this little scenario that's unfolding between Jonah and a plant. So you get hundreds of thousands of people down there, possibly going to be judged by God. Jonah's looking and he's he's expecting fire and brimstone. He's expecting unnatural heat to descend upon the heads of these people. But he's feeling a wee bit kind of hot and bothered himself. You think about the parallelism. He wants unmitigated, unrestrained heat and fire to fall on that city and on the hundreds of thousands of people in the city. But he's feeling a wee bit uncomfortable under the sun as he's sitting waiting for this. And he's very, very pleased that a plant grows up beside him and gives him some shade. It's farcical. It's utterly farcical. The things that please Jonah and displeased Jonah. So this plant grows. And as this plant grows, he is glad, he is happy. It seems the 40 days pass. The judgment of God does not fall upon the city, which is no surprise to us, but it seemed to be a huge disappointment to Jonah. And Jonah sits expecting the spectacle of the destruction of Nineveh, and instead of the city being destroyed, the plant is destroyed. So instead of God showering fire and brimstone on hundreds of thousands of souls and ushering them out into a lost eternity, God sends a worm to destroy a plant that's only existed for a day. And Jonah was as angry about that as he was about the city of Nineveh. We need this in verse number 6, that Jonah was exceedingly glad. In verse number 7, God prepares the worm and it smites the good, the plant, and it withers. In verse 8, it came to pass when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind. The sun beat upon the head of Jonah. He fainted. He wanted to die. And he starts talking like this all again. Can you see, Lord, Rain fire down upon the heads of that city. Do you know what the Lord does? He turns up the heat in Jonah. And he blasts Jonah with that east wind. Jonah, there's a little taste of what you want these people to experience in extremity. There's a little taste. How does that make you feel? 
Does that stir any sympathy for these people? Not a scrap. Does that stir any compassion for these people? Not a scrap. In fact, he's more concerned about being hot and bothered under the east wind than he is about the people of Nineveh being destroyed under God's judgment. When you stop and think about it, this is one writer who said this, Jonah should have found it easier to identify with the worm than with the plant. Because he's like the worm. He seems to find his great fulfilment in the destruction of God's creatures than in bringing God pleasure as the plant brought shade and enjoyment to Jonah. And Jonah wants the Ninevites to be torched and he is the one who's scorched. And Jonah is raging with God again. He's angry with God now in relation to the plant and the worm and God asks him the question again. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry in relation to a city that you've been sent to preach to? Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about a plant that grew up in one day and then withered away in one day? And for the second time, Jonah is challenged about his angry. And you know what he does? In no uncertain terms, he reiterates in verse number nine the fact that he feels justified in his anger. And he says... Doest thou well to be angry for the plant? And he said, I do well to be angry. I am right to be angry, even unto death. And then God finishes this book with a final word. And God speaks. And you don't hear Jonah speak again. And God says this to Jonah. Jonah, I want you to think about this. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh? This is God speaking. Jonah, you're upset about a plant. You had nothing to do with that plant. You didn't create that plant. You didn't cause that plant to grow. You had nothing to do with the destruction of that plant. That plant gave you temporary shade from the sun and you're upset and you're angry and you're distressed that a plant has withered. God is saying to Jonah, how do you think I feel? At pouring destruction upon the heads of 120,000 people and ushering them out into a lost eternity. How do you think I feel? That's what he says. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the difference between their right hand and their left hand, as well as all their cattle? How is it possible not (coughs) to understand God's compassion and mercy? Jonah, you didn't plant that. God looks at these souls, all of them precious to him. Jonah, you had nothing to do with the growth of that plant. Remember this in relation to every soul out there. This is true. In him we live and move and have our being. Please don't think that God is only intimately involved with the lives of of believers. Everyone out there is part of God's creation. 
Everyone a precious soul. Everyone an image bearer of God. He says that plant grew and you had nothing to do with its growth. God has everything to do with the life and the growth, so to speak, of individuals out there and those that were in the city, even though they're rebellious, even though they're idolaters. Jonah, you had nothing to do with that plant withering away and dying. God has, in his sovereign control of this world, is in total control of the circumstances of this world. This world is not spiralling out of control. Sometimes we forget how much compassion God has for a lost world. I wonder if we get more upset when a plant dies than when a soul perishes. That when your pet dies, that when a person dies. I wonder if we have more care or concern for our stuff than we do for the souls of men. I wonder if we underestimate God's passion for the lost as we think about our indifference. I wonder if we would measure again the evidence of God's intimate involvement in providing salvation for the hundreds and the millions and the billions of souls in this world. And turn our attention again to that cross and see vividly portrayed the love of God who would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For God so loved the world. Is it so familiar to us? Really, is it so familiar? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is it that makes you angry? What is it that stirs your emotions? What is it that draws compassion from your heart? If it is not the perishing, the souls of men. Why does a man think like Jonah thought? Why would I think like that? You see, these Ninevites gave Jonah nothing. The plant gave him shelter. So he valued the plant more than he valued a city. He cared for a plant more than he cared for people. Why? Because he valued their worth by what they provided for him. It is a selfish perception and perspective of life that everyone in my life circumstances has value, the extent of that value is how much they give or provide to me. And that will be how I value them. That's the way Jonah thought. And you have it in extremity here between a plant and people, but actually when you take the principle and you apply it to your life and mine, 
you find that that principle could be identified in so many ways. For example, if that person in your life provided you with nothing, would you care if they lived or died? If that relationship that's in your life provided you with nothing, would you value that relationship? Is your way of appreciating and valuing and showing compassion and love to people determined by that and by nothing else? Now, if it is, then we're not far off Jonah because we'll love our stuff more than we love souls because we more out our stuff. We'll love our reputation more than we'll actually love the salvation of an individual. Do you know, that comes from, and we see it in Jonah particularly, with his Jewish religious background, that to me is a huge problem for people who've been brought up within a religious environment. It's what I call the problem of entitlement. And Jonah had it in spadefuls. Jonah rejected essentially the principle of grace and he exchanged it for a principle of inherited entitlement. It's the same problem that the older son had in the story of the prodigal son. He had this sense of entitlement. He had his rights. He had his position. Things came to him by right. He was not someone who saw the principle of grace, and when he did see it exercised towards his younger brother, he objected to it. He found that the principle of grace was an inferior principle than the principle of entitlement and self-righteousness. He thought that he had more value to his father because of his own righteousness and because of his own inheritance and his, his own entitlement. And he figured that the younger son had squandered those things when he left home. Therefore, grace extended to him would bring him back home in a lower rung because grace is less than entitlement but when you come to the bible you find that that is not true when you come to the bible and you look at how god deals with the nation of israel with jonah and with us we find that god acts on the principle of grace because grace is a far greater principle than entitlement The only person who really despises grace is the person who thinks that they are righteous, who deserve or demand and find grace charitable and demeaning and less. What Jonah forgot was just this, that God's choice of his nation, which he had in his mind changed to entitlement, had actually been a choice of grace. Let me just quote this from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. This is Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, <coughs> for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, 
Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. <coughs> but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with, the, with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You see, the key there is the word loving kindness. Loving kindness is the basis for God's mercy and compassion and choice of Israel. Just as as was for his mercy towards Nineveh. And to Jonah. And to us. <coughs> Despite their sin, God rewarded not rewarded, God gave prosperity and peace to Israel at this time, despite their sin. <coughs> Israel's king was evil, as were the people. Their prosperity was nothing to do with their spirituality, it was all to do with God's grace. And that had been hardened into entitlement. Jonah himself was the recipient of God's grace. Jonah's deliverance we've seen out of the great fish was not as a result of his repentance in the fish. So too was the gift of the plant that gave him comfort. He never asked for it. He did nothing to create it or to make it grow God all of his grace. And the fact that Jonah was given a second opportunity to go and to speak for God was all of God's grace. And so you come to the end of this book. It starts with God and it finishes with God. And it's all about God in between. It's all of God's grace. It doesn't end nicely, as I said at the beginning. Not in the way that we would perhaps like it to end. Jonah doesn't live happily ever after. In fact, we've no idea what happened to Jonah, really. It's an open-ended ending. Because I think... Most of us never progress beyond the ending of Jonah. That's where we finish. Stalemate between my will and God's will. Jonah is in conflict with God, not so much in the things he says, but in the way he lives his life. There's conflict between him and God. His stubborn will is as yet unbroken. What will God have to do to break this man? We're never told. And this picture of the stalemate that still exists between Israel and God is a stalemate that can exist in your heart and mine. A standoff. You get it, the last book, Micah, I'm sorry, Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, you find this, that there's a conversation and the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi is this, I have loved you, saith the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's still there. Conflict. Stalemate. God's will. Their will. One writer said that this hardness of heart will persist until the great tribulation and the return of the Messiah breaks the stubborn pride and will of his chosen people who will be finally saved, not because of their righteousness again, but because of his grace. So where's the application then, just to conclude? We've seen many things that I won't reiterate through the different chapters. When we come to this chapter, to me, this is all about value. This is all about perspective. This is the challenge to us this evening. 
would we value a plant more than we value a person? Would we care more for an object than we would for a soul? I suppose we would, really. We're not that different from Jonah. Because we're instinctively selfish. And we see things through the prism of our own benefit and gain. And we tend to cut out of our life people who do not add value, as we see it, to life. God's grace, let me finish with this. God's grace to us came in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God which bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. The Lord Jesus, the very epitome, the personification of God's grace. God's unmerited blessing. Salvation is God's grace to sinful men. The forgiveness of sins, the provision of eternal life. We as Christians grow in and by means of grace. We are eternally secure in the grace of God, Romans 5.12. When we pray, we approach what? The throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. When we serve, Ephesians 4.7, 1 Peter 4.10. When we serve, we serve by grace. We live according to the standards of grace, Colossians 4.6. It's all of grace. So let's leave pride at the door. Feel the challenge of this. Be humbled by it. Be challenged by it tonight. Not in a broad, kind of generic sense. But to actually do this, why not do it? Why not just take a moment and draw into your mind's eye the person for whom you have no compassion. And think about the value that God places upon that soul. And weigh that up in light of the cross. And see the effect that has upon softening your own heart. Remember this. Everyone in this room is a person for whom Christ died. Not in a general sense. Every single person. A person for whom Christ died. Christ died for my sins. And he did so according to the scriptures. Did Jonah ever repent? Well, one writer, and I think it might be a bit fanciful, I don't know. One writer said this, but I did like the conclusion. It kind of left in a more upbeat note. Did Jonah ever repent? This writer says, I love the way the book ends. God speaks and Jonah says nothing until he wrote the book and then he said everything. And if Jonah wrote the book, well, maybe he reflected upon it and he left it as it was that we might feel the challenge of it. We trust that we will feel the challenge of this this evening and these last sessions that we've enjoyed together and felt the challenge of them. Let's just pray and ask for God's blessing.